First one, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Escalite. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind, in the storm and in the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel, the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him. And the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his, pre at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? Who is able to abide? Who can abide rather in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an utter end of the place. Thereof and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this night. We thank you for the book of Nahum. We pray, Father God, that you would uh, guide our time together now in your word. Father, I'm ever aware of the fact that uh, I need you to help me to have clear thoughts, to be able to put into speech that which, Father God, I've studied. And I pray, Father God, tonight that we would glean from your word some precious truths that would be a challenge to us, an encouragement to us, and we'd be able to leave this place this night singing your praise. Bless us now, we pray through your word, and use me to your glory, I pray. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We know the last time as we started out here in the book of Nahum that the background of this book is that the Assyrian army represented by Nineveh has destroyed Samaria in 722 BC, resulting in the captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel, those 10 northern tribes, and now is poised as a very real threat to Judah, the southern kingdom, those two tribes of the south. And the theme of this book of Nahum is the destruction of Nineveh. It's one of the unique Meyer prophets, one of the unique books of the Bible, but solely written to a Gentile nation, to the nation of Assyria, to the city of Nineveh. And the first chapter opens up with the vision of Nahum, which is verse 1, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Escalites. And then secondly, this book reveals to us the burden of the Lord, starting in verse 2 and following. Prophecy proper here in verse 2, opens with a song of praise that extols God. And Nathan, Nahum's description of God's character is unsurpassed in his grandeur and his glory as he sets out in this book not only to proclaim judgment upon the Ninevites, but to declare the glory and the majesty of Almighty God. And to that end, he firstly portrays God as judge here in verses 2 through 8. Now, there are three important words in this paragraph that need to be understood. If you and I are going to understand the character of God, which is what Nahum is seeking to reveal to us here, you and I need to understand these three words, for they clearly describe to you and I God's character in a very succinct way. And the words are jealousy, 
vengeance and anger. Jealousy, vengeance and anger. Look in verse 2. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth and the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and so on. Jealousy, vengeance and anger. So firstly, let's look at this word jealousy here in verse 2. God is jealous. Somebody said this, jealousy is a sin if it means being envious of what others have and wanting to possess it. But it's a virtue if it means cherishing what we have and wanting to protect it. It's one of those great English words that can be bad or good. It can be bad if you're jealous for what somebody else has and you want to possess it. Or it can be good if you're jealous for what you have and want to protect it. For instance, you know, a faithful husband and wife are jealous over one another. So much so that they will do anything to protect their relationship. That's a good jealousy. A jealousy that wants to protect that love relationship that a husband and wife have is a good jealousy. It's interesting, you know, the, the English words jealous and zealous come from the same root. For when you're jealous over someone, you're usually zealous to protect that relationship. And since God made everything and he owns everything, God's not envious of anyone. Okay, so there's no envy here. In God's jealousy and God's zeal to protect his people, it's got nothing to do with God being envious. That he wants something that belongs to somebody else. He already owns it. He owns all the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. God owns it all. He made it all. He owns it all. So there is no envy in God's jealousy. His jealousy is pure. His jealousy is simply because he loves something and he wants to protect that thing that he loves. Since he is the only true God, we find that what he's jealous of is his glory. He's jealous of his name. He's jealous of the worship of him and the honor that is due unto him by those who are his children. So as God comes to judge the Ninevites, these people who God had sent Jonah to, who had repented of their sin, turned to God, and God had blessed for the previous hundred years, as God comes to this people, he says, I am a jealous God of my glory and my majesty and my name. You know, the second commandment, God prohibited the worship of idols. And he backed up the prohibition with a reason. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, he says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. The reason why I prohibit the worship of idols, God says, is because I am a jealous God. He is jealous of his own honor. He is jealous of his own glory. And he will not give his glory, nor will he share his glory with anybody else. Idolatry is wrong because it means that either we're giving the glory to somebody other than God or we're seeking to share the glory of God with somebody else. And in either case, God will not allow that to happen because God is a jealous God of his name and his glory. You know, the Lord does not like his praise being given to graven images. And therefore, you'll punish the idolatrous. And here in Nahum chapter 1, the idolatrous 
people that he's talking to are the Ninevites. How soon they've forgotten God's great deliverance. How soon they've forgotten the preaching of, uh, of Jonah. How soon they've forgotten how God had threatened to destroy them. But uh, as Jonah went preaching and saying to them that God was going to come and wipe them off the face of the earth and they turned to him and God in his grace and his mercy saved them. How soon they've forgotten that and now once again they're worshiping idols. He's singing for God to share his glory with another. You know, since Nineveh by this time was a city given wholly to iniquity, especially idolatry and cruelty. And God's jealous love burned within him and it burned against their pride and burned against their wickedness and burned against their willful breaking of God's law. This was not a people who had not been confronted with the truth. This was a nation who God had gloriously saved. And now their descendants have turned their back upon God. And God's about to judge. You know, it's true today that God is still a jealous God. Our God is still jealous for his name. He's still jealous for his glory. He's still jealous for his majesty. God is still a jealous God, and he will not share his glory, nor will he share his name with anyone. Therefore, beloved, we need to ensure that we give him the glory due unto his name, and we worship him alone. But beloved, we remember that the God that we serve, the God that sent his son to die upon the cross of Calvary for you and I, is worthy of all the worship and praise and the honor and glory. It all belongs to him. And we need to remember to exalt his holy name because he is a jealous God. Second word that describes the character of God is vengeance. It says in verse 2, the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth, and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. You get the idea that God is vengeance? He says, I seek revenge, I seek revenge, I have vengeance. I will take vengeance on my adversaries. Now, you and I, when we think of vengeance, we usually think of vengeance being a sin, you know, somebody getting even, you know, I'm going to get even with you, I'm going to fix you up, but it's vengeance, and it's seen as evil, and it usually is. In fact, both the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ himself warned against you and I being vengeful. They both said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Both in Matthew uh, 5 and in Romans chapter 12, we're told that vengeance belongeth to the Lord, that you and I are not to be vengeful. You and I are not to seek to get even with people. That when people do us wrong, our responsibility is to forgive, not to get revenge. Responsibility is to forgive, not seek vengeance. So we're reminding the New Testament that responsibility for us is always to forgive. So vengeance for you and I is seen in the light of being sinful and wrong. But a just and holy God cannot see evil people breaking his law 
and do nothing. God can't just stand by and let the Ninevites continually disobey him. They've come and they've uh, taken captive uh, the northern kingdom and sure they needed it, they deserved it, they were wicked. They'd had not one good king upon the throne. Every king was an evil king. You sought to lead them into idolatry. And so God sent the Assyrians down to judge the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. That's true. But the Ninevites should not have been as wicked as they were and God was going to seek vengeance on them. He could not stand by and watch people break his law and do nothing about it. Indeed, mankind needs to understand that he can't fight against God and hope to prevail. We live in a wicked generation and our world is simply going blindly through life thinking somehow they can get away with everything and God's never going to hold them account for what they're doing. Judgment day is coming, folks. Our world is on a collision course with the judgment of Almighty God. When the tribulation comes, the wrath of God is going to be poured out like as a, as a wine from the wine press of a holy God. We poured out upon mankind, and mankind is going to understand what it means to offend a holy God. A man needs to understand that. Everyone who sets themselves against God will end up receiving his vengeance. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, particularly the Assyrians. So he says here, the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth, and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. These are strong words. This is, this is God. This is our holy God talking. These are strong words, vengeance and revenge. God is going to judge mankind. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, particularly the Assyrians. You know, vengeance belongs to the Lord. and He will repay sooner or later. Notice what he says here in verse 2. It says, the, the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserveth wrath for his enemies. He reserves wrath for his enemies. You know, our world relatively gets off scot-free these days with their wickedness. And think about what, what it is that we, we, we allow in Western society in particular where supposedly we were once Christian, what now we allow to go by without ever once batting an eyelid. And you know, there is a God in heaven who his word is holy and sacrosanct. And beloved, whatever God says is absolute truth. And our world, if it's breaching the law of a holy God, cannot expect God to continue forever to do nothing about it. He will judge. He must judge. Revenge, he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The judge will judge his enemies. He will deal with sin. And while mankind may get away with it for a time, there's a day coming when God will deal with it. 
You know, you can't help but think that that day is getting ever closer. We can be thankful that the High Court actually agreed to allow the postal vote to go ahead on the same-sex marriage issue. But you know, the fight is not over, folks. Things are just going to get harder and harder. If the Lord tarries, we're going to find that the more and more there is opposition to righteousness. I mean, look at the way people have been vilified for taking a stand against same-sex marriage and the way that they've been treated. That's just a snippet of what this world really thinks of righteousness. And the challenge for you and I as believers in all of this is that we need to remain faithful. Even in the difficult times. And rest in the knowledge the Lord will deal with our enemies and protect us. We are facing difficult days. And we need to trust God and we need to be faithful to Him. You know, because when God takes vengeance by judging people, it's because He is a holy God. He's jealous of His glory and His name, He's zealous of His holy law. And God cannot stand by and let it go unjudged. Let's never forget that we serve a righteous, holy God. And the principles, beloved, of his word are not negotiable. They're not open for negotiation. These are not suggestions. These are not guidelines. These are not some... God didn't just give to you and I some thoughts for what might be a good idea and you and I were to please ourselves what we do with them. These are absolute truth, beloved. If God said it, that settles it and you and I have a responsibility simply to obey it. It's absolute truth. When we read verses like this in Nahum that God revengeth, the Lord revengeth, his purest, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserveth wrath for his enemies. You and I ought to realize just how serious God takes his law. There's no mitigating circumstances with God. Mankind's not going to be able to go before the great judge of the ages and find that God finds some mitigating circumstance that lets them off the hook. He's a righteous God. And this verse ought to make us realize just how serious God takes his law. Jealousy, vengeance, anger. Verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not all at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Anger. You know, God's anger isn't like human anger. You know, often our anger is selfish and out of control. We get angry because we didn't get our way. We get angry because somebody did something we didn't like. Uh, we get angry, and it usually is a response, an emotional response, and often it's out of control. But God's anger is a holy anger. It's a righteous indignation against all the defiles his authority and disobeys his law 
this jealous God who seeks to, to bring revenge upon those who disobey him is angry at man's behavior. It's a righteous indignation against anything that defies his authority and disobeys his law. That's why God's people ought to exercise holy anger against sin. Isn't that what it says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26? Be angry and sin not. You and I need to be angry and sin not. We need a righteous indignation. You and I need to hate sin as God hates sin. Not the sinner, but the sin, the misbehavior, the, the disobedience. You and I need to hate the sin. We can't hate the sinner because the sinner, God loves the sinner, doesn't he? For God so loved the world, that's the sinner, that he gave his only begotten son, that he doesn't believe in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. God commanded his love towards us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves the sinner, but God hates sin. You and I need to hate sin with the same passion with which God hates sin. Somebody said this, a person who does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good. can't get angry at that which is wrong, then you can't really understand what it is to be good. Of course, that is a righteous anger that opposes evil. Like God, we ought to hate evil. It's interesting, in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 2, Nahum wrote that God was furious. In the middle of the verse there, and he's furious. And the word furious there means filled with wrath. God is furious. He reserveth wrath for his enemies, and the wrath that he reserves, he's furious about that. He's a furious God. In verse 6, he says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in his fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. He describes God's anger as indignation. And he describes his indignation as being so fierce and so powerful that it's poured out like fire. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. His fierce indignation is so powerful, it's poured out like fire with a power that is able to shatter rocks. God's trying to point, paint for you and I an imagery of, of what he thinks of sin. This jealous, holy God is furious with iniquity. He is furious with sin, so much so that his indignation is like a fire that's able to shatter rocks into pieces, disintegrate them. We don't often talk about God like this, do we? God is love. God sent his son to die for us. But beloved, that God that loved us, that God who sent his son to die for us, that God that poured out his indignation upon his son is this God. God's son suffered this wrath, this indignation for you and for me. This is what he went through. He experienced the full force of the wrath of almighty God upon him on Calvary. When it says he became sin for us, 
People not even understand what that means. The indignation, the fury of Almighty God was poured out upon the Son so that you and I might be saved. Think of the majesty and the glory of God. We must also see Him as a God who hates sin and must deal with wickedness. He is holy. Sin must be judged. Hebrews 10.31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Truly a powerful image. A holy God who hates sin and is furious at sin and wickedness. But you know what I love about God? In the midst of all this, he writes verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. And great in power, and will not acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind. There's a storm, the clouds of his dust and feet. But that phrase, the Lord is slow to anger. He assures us that God's wrath isn't a fit of rage. God's not having a temper tantrum, folks. It's not a fit of rage. It's not temper tantrum that's going on here. The Lord is slow to anger. Be glad about that. God had every right. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, he could have zapped them dead there and then, couldn't he? Because he said, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Could have wiped them off and started again. When he sent the flood, he could have wiped out mankind, but he didn't. He saved eight. God loves us, so he's slow to anger. You know, God is so powerful that if his anger were not a holy anger, and if he were not slow to anger, he could easily destroy everything. His fury is poured out like fire. The rocks are thrown down by him. Look at his power described to us in these verses, in verse 3 through 5. Look what he says. He says, Great in power, and will not all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind, and in the storm the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, maketh it dry. He drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt. The earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? He controls the force of nature. He opened the Red Sea so the people of Israel could march through on dry ground and then cause the waters to come back in again, destroy the Egyptian army. He turned off the rain. He made the most fruitful areas of the land languish in drought and famine. At Sinai, he made the mountains shake, according to Exodus 19. When he pleases, he can cause the people of the world to tremble, according to Hebrews 12. The God that Nahum introduces to us is a jealous God who was angry at sin. But who is a good God who cares for his people, therefore is slow 
to anger. Look in verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust in him. Don't you love it? Here, here the Lord is, is coming. This is the burden of the Lord. He's spelling it for you and I, his majesty, his grandeur, his glory. He, he's letting you and I understand how, how holy is his and how much sin is something that grieves him, how much he hates sin and wickedness. He cannot stand by and watch his holy law be broken by simple men without doing something about it. God is vengeful. He is wrathful. He's jealous. He's going to pour out his indignation upon mankind, but he's slow to anger and he's good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust him. Even in the midst of this description of the judgment he's about to pour out upon Nineveh, he says, if you trust me, I'm good. And I will be good to you. And I'm a stronghold. I'm a place of safety in the midst of trouble. If you know me, you're in my hand. You're safe and secure from all the trouble. I'm a stronghold. And I know you. I, I loved it. As I was reading through this and about the, the power and the majesty and the, and, the, and the anger of God against wickedness. And yet God says, because of you, because I love you, I'm slow to anger. And if you know me, I'll protect you from the fierceness of my indignation. That's why he's slow to anger. That's why we read in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse, eight, uh, verse 9 that God is not willing that any should, uh, you know, God is not slack concerning his promises, but some men can slackness. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. You know why God, you know why Jesus Christ has not come back yet? Because God loves people and wants to see souls saved. Nahum invites you and I, as Romans puts it, to behold the goodness and the severity of God. As Romans 11.22 says, the goodness and and the severity of God. That's what we have here. We have the goodness of God in being slow to anger, the goodness of God in being able to be a stronghold of those who trust Him, but the severity of God in that God revenges because God is jealous, but God is angry with sin. He is the refuge for those who trust Him, but He's an overwhelming flood for those who are His enemies. Look in verse 8. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make another end of the place thereof, and the darkness shall pursue his enemies. He's a place of refuge for you and I who know him. But he's an overwhelming flood for those who do not know him. Let's never forget how holy our God is. Bow before him reverently. Now go back with me to verse 3, please. Notice what it says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. He will not at all acquit the wicked. Because the Lord is slow to anger, because he is great in power, he will not acquit the wicked. God is not like an unjust judge 
who lets the guilty get out of their crimes because of a false sense of compassion. We can't assume that God will say one day, let's bygones be bygones and we'll all be friends. Sin must be paid for. Either by mankind himself in the lake of fire for eternity, which burneth forever and ever, or at Calvary. But it has to be paid for. Because he will not acquit the wicked. Romans 6.23 is still true today. The wage of sin is death. Nothing's changed. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The punishment, the, the payment for sin is death, was in the Garden of Eden, is today. The payment for sin is death. Either somebody has to die for their sins or somebody has to die in place of them for their sins. So people must either spend eternity separated from a holy God in the lake of fire or accept the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary where God's wrath was poured out upon his only son that we might be saved. But God must be satisfied. Praise God, it says in 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation. He's the satisfaction for our sins, not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. He died that we might be saved. He died that God might be satisfied, that the righteous demands of a holy God may indeed be satisfied through the death of his son upon Calvary. And people today have a choice to make. They either trust him and find out that God is good, or they reject him and find that he may be so to anger, but one day vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. When God is resisted long enough and rejected strongly enough, eventually judgment comes. And if man resists God, he will be judged and condemned. For eternity, he is slow to anger. But when it does come, his fury is poured out like fire. As verse 6 says, his fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. And beloved, as one commentator said this, understanding this should make men quick to repent and weary of presuming on the patience of God. And it ought also to move us to urgency of getting the gospel out to a lost and dying world. See, the Lord reveals this to mankind so that mankind might be moved to turn to him, to turn to him for salvation, to trust him as their savior, to find the goodness of God find that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble, to know him, to love him, to trust him. The Ninevites have been there. They knew this to be true. If they look back on their history, they knew this to be true. The Lord had been good. He was a stronghold for them in a time of trouble. But now they've turned their back upon God. They're worshiping idols and God says, I wait to judge you. And even in the midst of that, he says, I'm slow to anger. Why? Because I want you to experience my goodness, not by wrath. 
Don't we have a wonderful God? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Those who love him and trust him see the goodness of God and find protection in the strongholds of God. The Lord himself. You know, you and I, when we read passages like this, can become somewhat negative, I guess. You and I can get to the place whereby we, 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 we think what terrible passages. But beloved, God reveals this to you and I so that you might, I might understand just how good our God is. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve anything that Christ did for us on Calvary. We don't deserve the sacrifice he made for us. We don't deserve to be saved. We deserve God's wrath to be poured out upon us, but it's because God loved us. The goodness of God. You and I stand sit here today because of the goodness of God. But God's wrath has not been averted. Mankind will be judged if they don't accept his love. He knoweth them that trust him. Not as you know them in a sense of identification, but also in a sense of relationship. The only way to avoid the judgment of God, the only way to avoid the wrath of God is to know him. We have a great and powerful God, beloved, the judge of all the earth. But those of us who trust him find that the same power displayed as judge, the unsaved, is a comfort to us. Comfort to us is how great a God he is. So we ought to simply trust him and give thanks unto him, for he is a great and glorious God. And we ought to place our faith in him day by day. And give thanks unto him for his goodness towards us. He's a great God. He's a jealous God, a vengeful God, an angry God. But oh, he's a loving God. Praise God for who he is. I trust tonight we've gained a glimpse of a little bit of the majesty and the grandeur of our God. And that you and I will bow down before him in thanksgiving this night that this great and glorious God saw fit to save us. So that you and I might not spend one second in the lake of fire, separate from God. For to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord for those of us who love him. Why? Because God is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust him. Praise God that we have such a glorious God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, tonight we thank you that you are a good and glorious God. That you're slow to anger Father God, you'd rather save mankind than condemn mankind. 
Father God, help us to realize you're also a God who's a jealous God. You cannot allow forever your name, your majesty, your glory to be ignored. For your law to be broken by mankind. One day you will judge. And until then, may we be faithful standing up for Jesus Christ that people might see the goodness of God and receive the grace of God and be saved. Lord, may your word tonight resonate in our hearts for your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.